Hey guys, welcome to episode 158 of A True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. So we want to start off this episode by saying thank you to everyone who joined Patreon, left us a review, or spread the word about our podcast. You are all playing such an important role in keeping this podcast going, and we thank you so, so much. And if you'd like two full-length bonus episodes a month, please head over to patreon.com slash truecrimecouple. We promise you won't regret it. Plus, you'll get to be part of a truly amazing true crime community. But without any further ado, we know what you're here for. So, John, would you like to hear something crazy? Of course. Two weeks before Christmas in 2001, there was a brutal home invasion while a mother of three was home alone with her children. She fought for her life and the life of her three kids. During the struggle, there was one death. One death that led to a decade-long struggle for justice. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. Early Iowa is located just under two and a half hours northwest of Des Moines. It is known as the Crossroads of America, and you could quite possibly call it the perfect Midwestern town. Around the time of the crime we will be talking about today, the population sat at just over 500. Another small town. Super small. (laughs) Like, this is the even smaller than small, like village size. And every one of the 246 households within the city limits knew each other. Early was part of a larger, wonderful school system, but offered the charm and security of being close to your neighbors. And that was something that made the limited real estate of Early highly desirable. And it was all of that charm that made Mona and Brett Weedy want to stay in early, and raise a family of their own. The couple met in 1979 on a construction site in the city of Early. There was a bit of an age difference um, that I think is truly only acceptable in 1979. Mona was just 17 and Brett was 29. Oh, okay. So the two were immediately attracted to each other. While Brett was operating the bobcat, he would steal glances at Mona, and she, in return, would smile back at him. It was clear that the two were smitten with each other. And after just a year of dating, the couple knew that they were right for one another, and they chose to get married. In early 1981, they bought a house in Early, just after their wedding, and right away they were ready to start a family. Almost immediately, they got pregnant with their first child, a boy that they named Dustin. The family of three had a wonderful time together. Dustin was friends with all of the children in town that were his age, and Mona was so comfortable and grateful for their happy little community. It was amazing being Dustin's parents. Both Brett and Mona decided that it would be great to have more children, to grow their little family, and give Dustin a sibling. In 1987, Mona gave birth to their second child, a girl named Ashley, when Dustin was six. So there was a bit of an age difference between um, Dustin and then his later two siblings, because then in 1990, they had another girl who they named Brianna. 
And that would complete the Weedy family. You know, it's so crazy to me is like when we talk about these like small towns and we talk about, you know, the late 70s or early 70s, late 70s, whatever. It truly was possible to do all those things in rapid succession. Like, oh, you meet somebody, you start dating them. Okay, you know, everything's going well. All right, we're going to get engaged. Um, followed up by marriage, followed up by the house. Kids right away. Kids right away. Yeah. You try to do that now, you, you'll like be in a total world of hurt financially. Massive credit You try to do that. that. <laughs> yeah, everybody that is listening to this podcast knows what I'm talking about. If you tried to do that, you, there's no way yeah. you could do that nowadays comfortably. So I always just, it's always funny to hear that. It is true. But I'm glad they were able to do this. You know, that's good. It is. It's, well, they did wait. I mean, I, Mona had Dustin very young at 19 and they waited six years to have two more kids. They yeah. really enjoyed being his parents. But then as he became six years old, they're like, well, it is time to kind of give him a sibling. And I think that, you know, they were ready a little bit more financially. Right. So they made the right choices. They there. definitely did. <laughs> Mona was a fun and energetic mother, and what she loved doing more than anything was videotaping all of the family's events, and even parts of everyday life, so that one day they could be rewatched with love, nostalgia, and gratitude that they had even been captured. But I think it would be unfair of me not to paint the full picture of what life was like for the family. In the home videos that Mona showed, you could see a happy and beautiful family. They were healthy, but you could also see that Brett, although enjoying moments with his family, was truly exhausted. Three children are a lot more expensive than one, and he was definitely working a lot. And, you know, they had finances were a little tight. Brett did have a very expensive hobby. He did give it up for a short period of time because obviously financially it was hard to do with three kids, but he was, as you know, because your father did it, drag racer. He was a drag racer? Yes. Oh, wow. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, I have a lot uh, to be, have, or should, I should say, have in common. That's cool. And it's expensive. Oh, yeah. It could be very expensive. <laughs> so that's why he had to kind of put that on the back burner. But his job did involve cars. You know, he worked on cars. He worked on painting cars. So... That was something that they had. And in one like really cute uh, family video they had when Brianna was born, he had like spray painted a sign that said it's a girl, but he didn't have pink. He only had like Chevy red or something. So that's what he like put the sign in. It was really that's funny. funny. <laughs> and it's because of the family finances that Mona makes the choice that when her children all go to school, that she get her real estate license so she could help her husband make more money for the family, and to, you know, take stress off of him a little bit. And Mona was an amazing realtor. She was also so helpful to potential buyers because she already knew so much about the community. Those who Mona helped love having her as a realtor. And oftentimes she became really friendly with the families that she sold houses to. Oftentimes their children would go to school with some of her children. And that was true of the Roberts family. In 1998, Tracy and Michael Roberts used Mona Weedy as their realtor while they were planning a move from Chicago to Early. They ended up buying a beautiful Victorian home with a wraparound porch within walking distance of where the Weedy family lived. So they considered each other neighbors, which, you know, obviously isn't too difficult 
in the town of Early because everything was kind of so close within the one square mile that the town is. Mona became very close with the family, both personally and professionally. And it was exciting even just for the town to get these new residents. Of course, whenever anyone comes to Early, it's something that's exciting because it is such a small, tight-knit community. So they're welcoming another family into their bunch. But the Roberts were kind of different. They were from the big city of Chicago. And Michael was actually a native of Australia. So it it was cool. It was different. And everyone really enjoyed having them in the community. Tracy and Michael had a seven-year-old son named Bert and a new baby that they had named Noah. Their son, Bert, was just a year younger than the Wheaties' youngest daughter, Brianna. So it is through, like, the two of them that sometimes they have functions together and things like that. But the two mothers become very close. As time went on, Mona and Tracy, on top of growing very close in their personal friendship, um, also had this professional relationship where Mona helped them sell other properties in addition to their home. So she was kind of helping them make money within the community. Mona felt that Tracy was always kind and considerate, and she just enjoyed their conversations and her company. And we know all these are great traits to have in neighbors, so Mona was excited to have that. And as their friendship grew, as is common, the two women began to confide in each other. Tracy began to open up to Mona about her family situation and her life before early. She told her that Bert was not her son with Michael. Only Noah was Michael's biological son. She had been married before Michael, and it was with her first husband, John Pittman, that she had Bert. Tracy said that her life with John had been nice because he made a lot of money. He was a plastic surgeon, but she had not been happy with him. She said that he was someone who cheated on her and that he was at times abusive. So that was why they divorced. Soon after the divorce, she met Michael and the two of them met online, like an online dating. And they had this like whirlwind relationship and they just fell in love and got married. They actually got married after only 18 days of knowing each other. 18 days? 18 days. I mean, that's a, that's pretty short. It's short, yeah. I mean, I, but I guess if you know, you know, right? But I guess that's, yeah. that's true. <laughs> Mona had been a bit surprised when Tracy told her that because she had truly thought that Tracy and Michael had been together for a lot longer than just two years. They seemed so in love and connected. It kind of looked like they'd known each other for forever. So she told Tracy that she was really lucky because Michael seemed wonderful. And to kind of meet someone, know that you're instantly connected with them and then have this great relationship and have them be a good father to your son and then go on to have a family with them. Like you're really lucky that you got to have that second start. So that's kind of what, you know, they shared. And although it did seem a bit fast for Mona, she was like, that was, you know, kind of crazy. But she did marry Brett within the first year of them knowing each other, too. So sometimes when it's right, it's just right. I mean, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. And then she also figured, like, when it comes to the situation between Tracy and Michael, they were a bit older 
And when you're older, you seem to know what you want a little bit more. Yeah, and I and I think that like when you're you know you're younger, you make a lot of mistakes. When you get a little older, yeah, you, you know, I guess you're just prepared more. Yeah, when uh, you're yeah. Yo- when you're younger, I think you're in love with being in love with the idea. Yes. Yes. And then when you get older, it's kind of a little bit more practical. Although I will say, eighteen days rather quick. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. So now Michael was a devout born again Christian. He was no plastic surgeon, but he did make really good money. When he moved to early, he opened his own IT training company, and it was able to comfortably support the household. When he arrived in town, he had fallen in love with the small town charm. He wanted to help build up the community and to help the town, and to do that, he was opening up shop there. And he was just really talkative around town, about his the growing of his professional and personal life within the community and him wanting to to breathe life into the the small town and people were appreciative that he was so passionate about something that was theirs and he it seemed like he wanted to like intermarry professionalism the church and the town the community all together I see what you're saying but I do find it a little unnerving like it's too much Yeah. Well, he did rub some people in town wrong. Like, he made some people in town feel like he talked down on them a little bit. Like, kind of like, okay, you guys are nothing, but now I'm here and I'm going to help you. You have to realize that there's there's not much expectations, I think, in the beginning. You have a town of 500 people. What what more could you do? Yeah, like, how much more do you, like, what do you, what's your end game with a small town? And I mean, do you want to change it in a way where it would make people uncomfortable? Right, because this isn't Chicago. No. This is a small town, and people like that feel. Yeah. So, I mean, that's that, you know, I could see enemies being made. Well, I think it was just kind of like his bravado that I don't want to necessarily say made enemies, but people were not always necessarily comfortable with Michael. I mean, we're talking about of a farming community, and here's this big guy from the city working on computers. So it was kind of two different worlds merging. But at least he was being respectful about it, which was Oh, yeah, sure. And Mona thought that what Michael was doing or the dream that he had for his family and the community was wonderful. And again, she told Tracy how awesome that she thought it was and that they she really saw like a good future for the family here and early. And I think that was a bit of her realtor, too, like. And if you want to buy more properties, let me know. (laughs) Come see me. I'm your woman. (laughs) So after Tracy felt comfortable opening up to Mona about her past, Mona felt like she was in a safe place to discuss some of the problems that she had been facing. Mona had been young when she had her first son, Dustin, and she remembered that growing up, he was so full of life, joy, and happiness, and he had had so many friends. She recalled a sixth birthday party for him where just about every kid in the neighborhood showed up. But as time went on, Dustin began to change and he became really withdrawn and he had a hard time growing up. He didn't have a lot of friends. He was never invited to parties or sleepovers. And she knew that her son lived a very lonely existence within the community. And at that point, Dustin's 17 years old, and she feels like her firstborn 
child is only a shadow of his former self. And she's very upset about it. Yeah, and I'm sure she takes, like, she's probably going to assume that, uh, like, responsibility for that, you know, because I feel like most parents would. But that is sad that he is lonely and probably doesn't have a lot of friends. Right. And all parents, you know, when they see their children go through problems, they know they have to work them out their own, but they want to fix them for for their kid. Of course. So her heart was breaking in a million pieces as she watched him struggle to make friends. He didn't fit in. And in high school in the late 90s, that was hard if you didn't fit in. Mona said that her son would bravely put on a smile at home because he didn't want his parents to know about the ruthless bullying that he endured from his peers. And when they found out, he didn't want them to intervene. He was ashamed and didn't want them or anyone else to think less of him. He coped with his hard high school career by retreating to the downstairs family room where he would spend hours playing video games or on computers. He had solace in those moments where he could escape to other worlds or get lost in a game. And Mona admitted that one time Dustin came to her, probably frustrated with everything that was going on because he was different and introverted in a small Midwestern town where, you know, if you're not exactly like everybody else, you're treated as a complete outcast. And he asked his mother, Mom, what's wrong with me? And Mona assured her son that nothing was wrong with him, that he was incredible. And in time, he would be able to see that once he got past this really difficult point in his adolescence. But that wasn't to say that Mona and Brett just sat back and kind of let this happen. They did everything they could for their son. They were loving and caring parents that had a lot of empathy for him. They understood that he was an easy target for these bullies. He was quiet and a loner, and he did not want his parents necessarily to intervene in school things because he felt like that would just make the situation worse. Of course, we're talking about a time before like that bullying initiative was passed in schools in the early 2000s. Um, And it was because of situations like this where schools just weren't equipped to deal with these situations. And oftentimes when school officials would intervene, it would make the situations worse because they weren't trained properly in, in bullying intervention. Yeah, that must be really hard for like administrators, you know, and also like he doesn't want to be bullied further. So, yeah, I mean, it it's a very hard situation and there's really no way for you to fix it. No, there's not. And I think that made the parents feel definitely helpless in this situation. But Mona sought outside help for her son. They visited several doctors to get their opinions on the situation. And they all recommended that Dustin speak with specialists or psychologists. So she took him to many doctors and tried different doctors out with him. But nothing seemed like the right fit for him. They all seemed... Like they weren't necessarily listening to the things that he was saying or that's how Dustin felt. And Mona was getting frustrated, too, because with every new doctor, there was a new diagnosis. And she felt like her son was just struggling, not that he had like um, something that needed to be overcome. Like she felt like it was more of a depression. Well, I also think that that speaks volumes to like how far we've come today uh, compared to 98. You know, I mean... I think a lot a lot now is focused on trying to uh, find the cause, the root cause of things and, 
you know, just to be a voice to listen to and kind of break things down so things don't seem very overwhelming, it, it, right. it could help. Back then, I don't think it was like that, and, and, and the field was still in its infancy, so, Right, you know. the awareness of mental health definitely yes. was a lot more of a struggle in 1998 than I would say in 2023. And that struggle with Dustin's mental and social health made them worried that he wasn't going to finish high school. Because all the while he was going to these doctors, he was doing everything he could to avoid going to school, which was affecting not just his grades, but after a certain amount of absences, you do lose credit in courses. But despite all of his hardships, Dustin was able to graduate high school on time in May of 2000. Dustin was very relieved to be done with school. And in his graduation video, as his parents, sisters, and extended family cheered him on, it was evident that he was uncomfortable at the ceremony and was not proud of himself and just couldn't wait for it all to be over. The summer of Dustin's graduation was a good one for the Weedy family. They had had a family wedding in Colorado, so they decided to make a road trip out of it and stop at various national parks or cool attractions. Brett and Mona decided that it would be a perfect time to go because it would be just before Dustin was going on and getting busy with real life, and the girls were finally old enough to start enjoying things. But Dustin's reluctance to socialize almost threatened the trip. He told his parents that he didn't want to go, and they always respected his feelings, so they said, okay, if you want to stay home, you can. They trusted him. And when they got halfway out of town, they received a phone call from Dustin saying, I changed my mind. I want to (laughs) go. And that ended up being a really good trip for the family. And the videos that Mona capture show him like loosening up around them a little bit. And that might be because school was over. So he felt a little bit more free to be himself. Yeah, well, I think that always happens when you have uh, a child that's bullied and then, it, you know, they're not they might not see those people as frequently anymore and you feel like maybe that you can finally come out of your shell and maybe even reinvent yourself a little bit and you can choose who you surround yourself with that makes a whole lot of difference it totally does and i think he he felt you know the stress was alleviated a little bit which yeah took some weight off his shoulders okay so we're going to take a break here to talk about our first sponsor of the show After the trip, it seemed like Dustin's spirits were temporarily lifted, but soon everything went back to the way they had been. But now Dustin didn't have school, and although it might have been a sense of discomfort and trauma, the schoolwork and physically having to get up in the morning was something to do. And now that he didn't have that, it seemed as if his isolation and moods were getting worse. Mona reflected that the smile that she often saw on her son's face was just a cover-up for what she felt was an intense inner pain. In January of 2001, Mona and Brett were very worried about their son. His growing detachment from them and society in general was getting worse, especially after he lost his job at the local ethanol plant. Now, at this time, Mona is still really good friends with the Roberts family, Tracy and Michael. She even has taken on a role as a secretary bookkeeper for Michael's IT company, as it was more of steady income than the real estate market in Tiny Early, 
Another reason why she did this too is because this was something that Tracy used to help Michael with, but Tracy just had a girl, Mason. So she was taking care of the child. So that's why she was kind of taking on this bookkeeping slash like miscellaneous jobs at the IT company. Mona's concerns about her son had been shared to the couple whom she spent a lot of time with, both personally and professionally. But around that time, her concerns were growing more and more each day. Finally, Michael said that he wanted to help. He said that maybe he could offer Dustin a small job within the company because Dustin was into computers and gaming, and that might be something that interested him. And in addition to that, Dustin, he felt, needed spiritual and social guidance as well. Sometimes, Michael explained to Mona, you just need outside help. And especially when you're a teenager or you're in your early 20s, you're more welcoming to outside help than you would be to your parents helping you. It's kind of just how kids work. I mean, he's not wrong. I mean, I feel like a lot of the time that's what happens. And it has no reflection to do with the parents. It's just that's what sometimes they do. You go outside the the house. so Yeah, you're more likely to listen to someone who is not one of your parents. Definitely. And Michael promised that he was going to take Dustin under his wing, get him involved in some things and lead him in a good direction, kind of like a mentorship. Michael and Tracy began taking Dustin with them to church. And this was something that Dustin really responded to quite well. He became a regular attendee of the Baptist church and he was an admirer of Michael and his born-again faith and everything that he was doing within his career because Michael really was a very wealthy and confident man, and that was something that Dustin wanted for himself. In addition to church, Michael organized a weekend paintball trip for the two of them, and Mona recalled that when Dustin came back from that trip, she truly saw her son happy for the first time in a really long time. He had had a wonderful time, and after that, Dustin and Michael would often go paintballing. Dustin had some work, and it seemed he was starting to get his bearings, and that was what Mona and Brett thought was most important for their son. Like, they really weren't necessarily too worried about him working yet. They wanted him to build his confidence and and be happy and, and just set within himself first, and then they wanted him to go on and try to pick what he wanted his career to be. And it seemed like Michael was helping him do that. I mean, yeah. I mean, he's still young and the, and the parents have the right idea. The only thing, I, once again, I don't know why, but on the back burner of this whole entire thing, I just still feel this this uneasy feeling about Michael. I don't know why. Don't ask me why. Okay. But I just, I just feel like his willingness to be so helpful is a, a warning sign for me. Yeah. And I... And it has nothing to do with uh, the faith or anything like that. I, I just think that, like, he's suggestible, uh, suggestible, right? And I think Dustin's, like, in a weak state of mind. And I don't know if that's, a like, that's not good. And like I he, think... Like, you think he could be taking advantage of the boy a little bit? I think bit. he's trying to take advantage of the boy by molding him into what he wants because he's trying to do that for the town and it rubs people the wrong way. So I find that Dustin is in this situation and the parents have this blind eye to it because all they care about, which, every, you know, they should, is their son. So they're like, oh, my God, he's smiling. He's upbeat. He's cheery. What's happening must be working. So they're not even thinking. What is happening is on there's more weekend? to this than meets the eye? So I'm still very 
weird about this. Okay, so you're putting a red flag on Michael. Yes, but once again, to clarify, it has nothing to do with the religion. It's just I, I don't... I don't know if I f- I'm feeling him too much. It's his eagerness to yeah. get involved in so much stuff. Yes. It's kind of like that thought process where it's like, don't trust that coach that doesn't have kids and always brings orange slices <laughs> to practice. You know, yes. Yeah. There's something not right. <laughs> and, and and there hasn't really been any warning signs. It's just me like being a little too cautious. But I see what you're saying. Yeah. So, of course, seeing... Your oldest son bonding with another male role model figure was something that was difficult for Brett, but he truly did want the best for Dustin. He loved him more than he could ever say. And it was hard for blue collar Brett, who had been raised by a harder generation to connect with his son, but he really wanted to. And and it was hard because Brett had never really truly been close with Dustin. Dustin, who was into like computers and video games and Brett, who was into drag racing and cars. And he wanted something that was going to bring the two of them together. And after seeing Dustin's positive reactions to the activities that Michael did, he thought of an idea because his son wasn't disinterested in cars. He thought that cars were cool Um, He wasn't necessarily attracted to the idea of drag racing because I guess to Dustin, it wasn't as exciting. So Brett, in an effort to get his son involved in his own activities, decided to take on a new project, figure eight racing. I mean, that's pretty cool. I I have to tell you the similarities right now. I know. It's it's so weird. So, I mean, I don't don't want to get into it too much, but pretty much, I mean, this is mimicking my dad and I. And it's, you know, it's so freaky, actually. I mean, that's how I was. I I was into computers and technology and and video games, and my dad was into cars and drag racing. I mean, my dad was very good, and, you know, and I'm sure he could probably still do it very well. Um, But uh, I loved cars, but I wasn't into it. Like, I wasn't into it like him. But I had interest in other types of, like, racing. So my dad tried, like, circle, like, circuit racing and, like, dirt racing. But could just never get into it like he could. And I think it, it just speaks volumes to the generations. Like, to them, that w- is the coolest thing. The, the, the crazy adrenaline rush that just happens. And, it you know, that's how they connect. And the uh, uh, later generations, they connect in a different way. So it's hard. And, you know, as an adult now, I could see how hard it must have been maybe for my dad to connect. So I could see how here it would be difficult as well. Right. And it's nice that just like your dad did, he tried to see like, okay, well, he may not be in what I'm into, but like, what could, how could I meet him halfway? And that's what your father attempted to do. And that's what Brett is attempting to do here. So he's like, you know, maybe Dustin will think it's cool if we do the figure eight racing. And, and honestly, you know, Dustin loved it. And the summer of 2001 was incredible for the family. And it's so funny because as I was like reading this case, I go, oh, my God, this is John and his dad. Yeah, it's so weird. Yeah. So Dustin loved working on the old beater like stock cars that his father purchased for the figure eight racing. When they would go to the track on the weekend, the whole family was together. And Dustin would yell and cheer from the stands for his father and the car that they had created together. And as can be seen through the videos that Mona was still capturing, uh, once Brett would drive off the track, Dustin could be seen running over to embrace his father, talk about the race that usually Brett never really won, (laughs) 
And if you don't know, figure eight racing is obviously racing on a track that's figure eight. But because the track is set up as a figure eight, there are a lot more collisions that happen, which makes that form of racing a little more exciting. Yeah. For some. (laughs) For some. For some. It's super dangerous. And, you know, Brett was a lot older at this time. So... You know, Dustin just, he was laughing in these videos and he was happy. Like Mona was asking, like, what place were you in before you lost? And it was like, and Dustin was laughing. And it was like really beautiful that this moment was captured with the family because Dustin seemed to radiate with happiness. And this, for the first time, his parents felt this was a true smile coming from him not only was he finding himself with his friendship with michael but also with this like renewed interest with his father i mean i'm happy for him you know i'm happy for you know the kid that he's finally like you know having a smile (laughs) yes and he finally finally was beginning to understand how much he was truly loved but as the weedy family flourished trouble was brewing within the home of the roberts family In the fall of 2001, Tracy confided in Mona that she was upset with Michael. She loved him, but, and then she would list all of these things that she didn't like about him and things that bothered her. Uh, One of the things that bothered her was that he was a strict disciplinarian with um, not just their children that they shared together, but with Bert, who was his stepson. And these were things that, really went beyond everyday annoyances. That's how Mona felt. To her, this seemed like serious things that she was sad to hear about because she thought that Michael was so wonderful and she was forever grateful for what he was doing with Dustin. So she found it quite odd that he was a different way with his own children, essentially. And she was upset because this kind of there was a perfect balance between the two families. And she was also dealing with them professionally. And she's like, well, this is kind of like a weird situation I'm in because my friend is telling me about the horrible things that her husband does. But he's also my boss and the mentor to my son. Right. I mean, I think this uh, this is a red flag, honestly, because I mean, like we've, we use this phrase all the time, practice what you preach. Right. If he's not even doing that in his house, but he's doing it with Dustin, that, that that's that's bizarre and weird to me. So either either the wife is lying um, for some reason or that is the case. And if that's the case, it's weird. Right. Like, is he projecting something that is not his reality? Right. So Mona being involved in the fighting between the couple culminated in an explosive incident that took place at the Roberts house. Mona would often work um, from the couple's house. She would do bookkeeping or make phone calls. They had like an office building on their property separated from the main house. And she would oftentimes work there. And it was very easy because she could just walk there from her house. And on one evening, she had gone over because Michael had asked her to make some marketing phone calls. She and Michael were sitting in the office at their um, two desks, which are on either sides of the office. And as Mona explained it, Tracy came tearing through the back door. And when she found Michael, she began yelling at him. And Michael kind of just like was listening. And then he looked over at Tracy and said, you know, I think it would be uh, better if you left. 
And Mona was excused from her working duties that afternoon. And as she left, she heard the two of them screaming. I mean, that's extremely awkward. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, that you're in the presence of your boss and your friend at their home, and now they're starting to fight. I've... I don't know. I would not react well in a situation like that. I'm glad it never happened to me. Yeah. Like what? Like having friends argue in front of me or whatever. Which is thank God because it's weird. I find it very. I hate when couples argue in front. No, of me. I just want to like put like wine corks in my ears. Yes. <laughs> ears. <laughs> well, they say that when you start arguing in front of other people, that that's when it's the beginning of the end. Ooh. Um, but I will say I thoroughly enjoy a couple argument if we're out to eat and they're at a different table. No. Because then I'll listen the whole time. Guys, I don't even want John to talk to me. At guys, this, this happens all the time. <laughs> I, I'm like, I'm like, Kay, stop being so nosy. Like, we were just having a conversation. You're like talking over, you're like listening over there. I'm like, what, what's going on here? No. But you always do that. I do. I'll, I'll thoroughly <laughs> enjoy that, but I like don't want to know them. That's but- when I put my head down and I do not listen <laughs> because I don't want to be nosy. Okay, so shortly after this incident, I'm sure everyone can agree with me that that's the best thing to do at a restaurant. And you know what? Maybe, maybe people will agree with me not to be nosy. We'll see. Okay. We'll see what people say. <laughs> we'll see what the consensus yes. is coming Yes, well, let's back. get a take on that. Shortly after the incident, Michael reached out to Mona and told her that maybe it would be best if she didn't work for the company anymore. Ooh, okay. He understood that this would cause financial stress to her family, so he basically gave her a severance package of sorts, basically paying her not to come back to work. I, like because because she wants out, or or because maybe she, he doesn't want her I, to like. I guess he doesn't want her intertwined in the inner workings of their marriage, and then be involved with them professionally. To Mona, it was weird. Yeah, that is weird. And she felt like it was very abrupt and odd. And she felt like, she felt like, listen, I have a family too. I also have three kids. I know what it's like. It's not rainbows and butterflies all the time. So like it was normal that you guys had a fight. It would just be more professional on your part not to have it in front of your employees. Well, this is just a shot in the dark. But I mean, I think it has, it's more of maybe that that he actually found out that his wife was talking to Mona oh, about he, about their the inner workings of their relationship and what she doesn't like about him. And he's like, "Now I don't want yeah. you to be working for right. me." And maybe that's what it is because it would be it's a little odd for it to just be one incident. So maybe it's that plus other things. other stuff. Yeah, that's true. That's possible. So because of this bizarre incident and just the complications of life. The Weedy and Robert's family grew a little bit more distance in terms of the parents. Dustin continued to attend church with the family and hang out with Michael. But after Mona had been asked to leave the IT firm so abruptly, things were a little bit strained, reserved, I should say. And she didn't meet up with Tracy as much as she used to. And it's just, you know, sometimes that happens. There's ebbs and flows of all types of relationships. And they might have just been in a little bit of a lull in their friendship. But that is what brings us to December 13th, 2001. And I know that was a bit of a buildup, but I promise you it will all make sense in the end. Because without that buildup, nothing in this case would make sense. Don't worry. We trust you. Okay. Thank you. 
So on the 13th of December, while Mona was out shopping for Christmas gifts, she called home to check on her children. Her youngest, Brianna, answered the phone. In reality, Mona had really called to check on Dustin to see if he was out of bed yet. It was a weekday and she didn't want her 20-year-old son sleeping in too late, especially because he had an orthodontist appointment at 1 p.m. Brianna told her that Dustin was actually up and that his keys were gone, so he was kind of like already going about his day. And Mona was excited about this because not only was her son up early, but he'd gotten his day started early as well. She learned, as you can imagine, when you have a child who struggles with their mental health to appreciate the little victories, and and this seemed to be one of them for her. So happily, Mona went on shopping. She had many errands to run, and she would be gone for the entire day. Later into the evening, as she was doing her shopping, further away from the small, small town of Early, like really like any shopping that she could do would be like an hour, hour and a half away from town. That's crazy. <laughs> Imagine you think about that. Oh my God. Well, that's kind of how it is for me when we go shopping together. That's not true. You, yeah, but it just feels that way. Like when John, we, we have a Target five minutes from our house. <laughs> yes, but it, it takes so long in there. It's, <laughs> oh I mean, it just does. The uh, tortured life of John. Yes. <laughs> it's like, oh, it'll only take like 20 minutes. No, like two hours. I have to sh- I have to like lie to John to get him out of the house. I'm like, oh, we're just going to go to the grocery store quick, five things. And then I'm like... Actually, we have to start with Target first, and then we have to go. Yeah, she just starts adding things on. But you know, you know what though? <laughs> you saying it like that actually makes me believe that like you have to treat me like a kid to I fool do. me. I do. I am <laughs> terrified of when I actually have children. Oh, stop it! <laughs> All right, hey, whatever. So a few hours later, into her shopping, she received a phone call from her nephew Brandon. He told her that small town so everybody knows everything everything's very interconnected he had told her that something bad had happened and she asked him what do you mean something bad and he said there was a fatality he said it was in their neighborhood and she asked at what house and he said your neighbor's house your neighbor's house she said tracy and michael's house and he said yes yes there was a fatality So Mona immediately headed back into town. And really the only thing she could think of was either Michael killed Tracy or Tracy killed Michael. I mean, yeah, but and it's so weird because it seems like they they were trying to be this prominent like family, like, you know, everything perfect perfect couple. Yep. And like I said, early was truly a small town, a community in which news traveled at lightning speed. And that was how everyone knew what happened just shortly after the initial 911 call had come in at 7 p.m. The caller had been a young boy. He told the dispatcher that someone had come into the house. It was Bert. He said someone came into the house and tied his mother up. He said that they had been choking her, but that his mother had been able to get a gun and shot one of the men and made the other run away. Bert? was only 11 years old. Aww. When law enforcement got to the scene, Tracy was sitting outside with her children, Bert, Noah, and her baby girl that she had just had within the year, Mason. She told the officers that he was upstairs. She was hysterical. In getting the story from both Tracy and her eldest son, Bert, they understood the following. 
Bert and Noah had been inside one of their bedrooms while Tracy had been giving her daughter a bath. When the two boys heard their mother scream, Tracy said that she heard someone coming up the stairs and she thought that it might be her husband coming home early from his business trip, but it was not. Startled, seeing an intruder in her house, she went back into the bathroom, grabbed her daughter, and then ran into the boy's bedroom, and she threw... Now, Tracy said she doesn't remember this, but this is what Bert says. Basically, she she threw Mason at her oldest son and shut the door to keep them safe, just as Bert saw his mother getting pulled backwards by the hair from, by a man. That's terrifying. Yeah. Those poor kids. So 11-year-old Bert put his younger sister down and grabbed a baseball bat. He searched frantically for something for his brother to use to defend himself, but the only thing he could find in the room was a pen. He gave it to his brother and told him to use it to defend himself if anyone came into the room to hurt him. At one point, their mother tried to get back into the bedroom and... Um, She was unable to, and that's when another struggle ensued with the intruders. According to Tracy, at that point, she had been dragged back into her bedroom, where one of the men began to strangle her with a pair of pantyhose that she had had out. She said she must have passed out during the strangling because the next thing she knew, she woke up and she could hear her son cursing at the intruders to leave them alone. Um, Based on what Bert is going to say the intruder was trying to get into the room and Bert was screaming at him like cursing at him not to come into the room and telling him that they had weapons so there was like he shouldn't come in so now Tracy just awakening from being unconscious from being strangled knew that she had to act to protect her children she then scrambled for the gun safe that they had in the bedroom and she could hear that the intruders were coming back because they must have heard her movements. As she was trying to punch in the code, they were grabbing her legs, and she was trying to fight them away. She had luckily been able to open the gun safe. She grabbed the handgun and pointed it over her shoulder and fired, but nothing happened because she hadn't taken the safety off. Oh my gosh. So she takes the safety off. She realized what she had done and she took the safety off and pulled the trigger again it fired the loud sound instantly silenced the chaos in the house for a moment she didn't want to stop because she wanted them gone and away from her children she continued to fire she said she couldn't stop herself she just kept shooting until she couldn't any longer she had managed to get herself onto her bed and she fired wildly around the room She heard one of the men run off and the other fall to the ground. She then heard her children screaming for her from their room. She ran to them and opened the door, and Bert swung, almost hitting his mother with the bat. He dropped it as soon as he realized it was his mother. She grabbed the children and began to usher them out of the house. She thought that they were safe. But according to Tracy and Bert, the intruder that had been shot on the ground of the bedroom was getting up. He was still alive. With blood pooled all around him, he was trying to get to them again. She ordered the kids back into the bedroom and she grabbed a second gun from the gun safe 
and she fired a warning shot and told the man to stay on the ground. But he didn't listen. He kept getting up. Bert heard his mother yelling at him not to get up from the other room, and then he heard his mother fire two more shots. The man was now dead. And that was when Bert had gotten to the phone and called 911. Afterwards, the family waited on the front porch. Tracy, not wanting her children to see the carnage that was inside, tried to avoid, have them avoid looking into the bedroom, but there was gun smoke everywhere, they said. After the quick story, the deputies went into the house. They first checked to make sure the first floor was clear, as they had been told that there had been another suspect in the house, so they knew that they had somebody on the loose. Then they went upstairs, and just as Tracy said, there was a man lying face down in a pool of blood. Tracy told the other officers that waited with them and the kids that she knew who the man was in her bedroom. She had known the person that had done this to her. His name was Dustin Weedy. No. Oh, my God. Okay. Wow. I I love when you do this to me, but then I hate it at the same time. (laughs) Wow. Okay. Okay. Wow. This is is crazy. I have a lot of questions, though, now. Of course you do. My biggest question is, why? Okay. Why would he do this? Secondly... Is Mike was Michael involved in this? Okay, did Michael groom him to do this? Maybe. And three, where is he really on a business trip? Okay, where that is, just sounds like a good alibi. What are Michael's whereabouts? This is interesting. Yeah, big plot twist there. <laughs> you know what's crazy though? Look at my little timestamp of when I wrote this. Dustin used. I know. How do you write? Here, I'll, I'll read it. Since yeah. I wrote, I wrote at two twenty six. It's now two forty two. I wrote Dustin might have been used maybe to kill family or wife okay. on Michael's behalf. That's what I wrote at two twenty six. Wow, yeah. I like that you put a little timestamp there to prove yeah. yourself. <laughs> nice evidence. <laughs> so Tracy and the children were brought to the nearest hospital where all of the wounds that she suffered during the attack would be tended to and the children would get checked out, even just, you know, emotionally for having gone through all of that. Michael was contacted and told his family suffered an attack. He had been out of state for a business meeting and he was making arrangements to come back immediately. John Pittman, the father of Bert and Tracy's first husband, was also contacted, um, so he would know that his son was involved in an incident where his mother almost got murdered. Yeah. And someone was killed in front of him, basically. I mean, it's good that they let him know. Yeah. I mean, this is serious. So as I said earlier, what had happened at the Roberts house tore through the community of early. Brett had heard the rumblings of many things while working and coming home from work. Things that his wife, who was now home, um, had not heard. When he got into the house, he asked his wife if Dustin was home. She told him that he wasn't and asked why he was asking. And Brett said that he thought his son's car had been in the Roberts house. Mona's heart dropped. She'd been shocked to hear news that something awful may have happened to the Roberts. But she was waiting to hear what actually happened after, you know, all the gossip passed and 
the police issued a statement like she's she didn't want to get involved in the gossip of it all she wanted to wait but now that she might be sharing in the tragedy she was now in a panic and she and brett got in their car and headed down the road to where all of the flashing lights were to see if to see if dustin was involved that must be so scary yeah you know, just to even think, is there a possibility that that's my son that did this and is dead in that house? Right. Unbelievable. When the couple got to the Roberts' house, they did find Dustin's car there. Brett had been correct. Mona and Brett knew most of the officers who worked for the early police department. So when they reached the barricade with all of its police tape, as the scene was being combed and processed for evidence, they begged the man that was standing there to tell them whether or not their son was in the house. He told them yes. And then she asked if he was the one who was dead. And with much empathy, he again told the family yes. And Mona remembered dropping to her knees. The Wheaties would later learn that their son had been shot nine times i mean that's so sad i mean i have so much to say but i'm gonna hold it back for now but that is so sad to hear that because as a parent you want to always protect your kids and throughout this whole episode that i've listened to i've heard nothing but amazing things from this kid's mother that always tried to do the right thing by him and the father too and they, they really did try they did what they could they did what they knew how to do and it's just so sad to see what has taken place here right like they did everything in their power to prevent something like this happening but it seemed to have happened and now just the question is why right whether outside influences (laughs) was this kid subjected to to make him make such a crazy decision right because violence had never been a part of the problems that they had with dustin right That's kind of weird that it just changes up like that. I don't know. Very interesting. But before we go any further, what we're going to do now is take a break and talk about our second and final sponsor of the show. Back at the hospital, the detectives wanted Tracy to answer some questions for them about what had happened. Again, she explained the events that night to the homicide detectives, just as she did for the officers that had taken her initial statement at the house. They asked her first if she could describe the second man who had been involved in the attack, as he was still on the loose. And that was the number one concern for the community. There was somebody that had participated in this that was out there. Yeah, and could possibly do it again. Right. So she said that it had all happened so fast. And she remembered some things, but not others. Like, for example, she didn't remember, like, throwing Mason to Bert, but Bert kind of filled in what she couldn't. Right. I mean, in the heat of the moment, I mean, you're in a battle for survival. I mean, she she's going to have a hard time remembering everything. Exactly. And she said she hadn't really gotten a great look at the second man because she was more focused on Dustin and thinking why and how he could do this. The description she gave of the second man was very general. She said he was anywhere between 5'11 and 6'3. He was made up of like an average build. He had dark hair, either dark brown or black. And he was between the ages of 35 to 40, which is interesting because that is a significant difference in age to Dustin, who was only 20 years old. Sounds like a possible um, husband, maybe. 
What I wonder what the husband's size. Well, is. I think she <laughs> would notice if it was her husband. And they weren't wearing masks. Oh, they weren't. No. Huh. Could it be somebody from? Hold on. Doesn't he have a church? Yes. Maybe it's somebody from his congregation. Okay. Well, he doesn't have a church. Like he's not a. Oh. But he just attends a church. He just attends. Okay. Yeah. I, I, never mind. I don't okay. know. So next they asked if Dustin had been angry with them or ever done anything to show aggression towards her or her family in the past. And she says no. But there was an incident that day that she thought was really odd and out of character for the 20-year-old boy. She said that earlier in the day, Dustin had stopped by the house to ask if Michael was home and if the two of them could hang out. Tracy told him that he was not home, and actually he was on a business trip and was out of state. And after she told him that, he didn't leave. He stayed on the porch. Like, he still wanted to come in. Like, the answer wasn't good enough for him, or that there was something else that he wanted. So she wanted to continue going about her day because she was busy with the three kids, and it took a long while for her to talk to him and for him to get the hint that, like, She kind of wanted him to leave. And she thought that that was odd. So like detectives were thinking, was this was this his way of like checking if Michael was home and if this was a good day to do it? I mean, yeah, I mean, that that's what screams out to me. But it's just none of this seems like the kid's character at all. Right. So this is when Tracy told the detectives that she honestly had never really been comfortable around Dustin. She said that she never really liked his affect when he was around Michael, like he would try to show off. And she hadn't been a huge fan of Michael mentoring him, really, and she told him that it made her uncomfortable. She said she didn't like everything that he was doing to include this boy in their life because she never felt comfortable with Dustin around the children. In later interviews, Tracy told the media that she said that Mona had told her that Dustin had violent tendencies towards his sisters, and because of that, she didn't want him around her kids. Okay. I mean, okay. I know for that, for now, we have to take that at face value. Yeah, exactly. But what had been the motive? That was the real question, you know, that detectives were plagued with because why would they break into this house, especially a kid who had been family friends with the family? So back at the scene, the technicians um, were working and trying to find clues and things like that. And what they really failed to find were any fingerprints because they were trying to identify who this second person could be. But they couldn't even find fingerprints from Dustin. They did find bullet holes all throughout the bedroom that were consistent with Tracy firing wildly. But all of Tracy's jewelry and all of the expensive things in the home were still there. Nothing had been touched. They looked at Dustin's car to find more evidence. There, in his back seat, they found a computer tower and a monitor from one of Michael's older computers. But they thought that this was a really odd clue to find. Because Michael, who worked for an IT company, had some really expensive, like, cutting-edge, like, new computers. This was a very old, basically obsolete computer. So it would be odd for Dustin to take that. 
But then it also didn't make sense because if it was present in the backseat of his car, that meant that he would have went into the house, taken the computer, carefully put it into his car, and then went back in the house to then attack the family and get murdered. I don't think that's any motive to like, like, we're not saying he's taking something from the house. I think that computer might have just came from the business. It could have just been an obsolete computer that he was, that he asked if he could take maybe. And then they said, yeah. Right. Like this was present in his car long before the, the murder. Correct. Took place. Exactly. I, I agree with Because you. I mean, think about it. If they have cutting edge technology and this computer is obsolete, they're just going to toss it anyway. And he must've been like, oh, I could take it home. I could, I could tinker with it and do something with it. Because exactly. it seems like that would be his personality. Right. And nothing else had been taken from the home, nothing expensive. There was cash, there was a lot of jewelry, like I said, like technological things. And another thing that was found in Dustin's car that the police found very interesting was a pink spiral notebook found on the passenger seat. And when they opened it, they discovered that this was Dustin's journal. Okay, we got to read this. <laughs> yeah, you got to read this. Journal. Okay. So within this diary, the detective found that the journal outlined a murder for hire plot. Okay. Where Dustin admits that he was hired to stalk, harass, and ultimately kill Tracy Roberts. For who? Well, in this diary, Dustin wrote, Decided to keep a journal to gather my thoughts and make a record of a mysterious fellow who has asked me to work for him. John Pittman. John Pittman. Now, John Pittman is Tracy's ex-husband and the father of Bert. But why? And how did they get to know each other? Well, detectives in Iowa were shocked by this. Because you're right, they were thinking the same thing you were. What would their connection be? And to be quite honest, by asking the family questions, and once they had contacted John Pittman to let him know about what had happened to his son and ex-wife, it was very clear that there was a contentious relationship between Tracy and Michael and her ex-husband. So it is odd that Dustin, who was being mentored by Michael, would be hired by John Pittman who Michael hates. It's very bizarre. This doesn't add up right now. So, um, because detectives were kind of like, we got to get this figured out, um, they wanted to talk to John Pittman. But the problem was he didn't live in Iowa. He lived in Virginia. So they arranged for county law enforcement officers in Virginia to go question John Pittman. And kind of, you know explained to him about what had happened to his ex-wife and that they might be thinking that he was involved potentially in a murder for hire plot. But there was something else very odd going on in addition to what was being outlined in the notebook that could lead this case in a totally different direction. Of course, at this point, Michael had made his way back too early and he was talking with detectives and Michael said that actually when he heard about this happening, his mind didn't first go to John Pittman. It went to somebody else, somebody in Chicago. Okay. 
I I already don't believe it. Okay. No, this is wild. I mean, okay. I, I it just someone in Chicago randomly. Okay. No, it's not random. It's not. No. Okay. So so after talking to Michael, the detectives learned about an incident that had taken place four years ago in Chicago. One day, soon after their marriage began, Tracy had told Michael that she was going to fax something to him, but she was worried that he was not going to love her anymore after she shared it with him. When he received the document, he was surprised to see the letterhead of a dentist's office. In the document, an agreement was outlined where the dentist was agreeing to pay Tracy $150,000 over a period of 15 months and give her two round trips and hotel costs for her and her husband to go to Australia for Christmas if, in exchange, she didn't go to the police. Well, why would she go to the police about a dentist? The document outlined that as well. It appeared that Tracy had gone to the dentist in hopes that he would be able to help her with some TMJ pain that she was feeling after a car accident that she had had the previous June. He admitted to misrepresenting that he could lessen her pain through a fictional procedure that would require sedation. During this procedure, the anesthesia mask slipped off of Tracy's face and she woke up to a truly terrifying scene. She was wearing red thigh-high stockings, no underwear, and stiletto-heeled pumps that were too small for her. Her dress had been pulled down and her breasts were exposed. The doctor had one of her legs over his shoulder and he was masturbating. As she came to, Tracy kicked him off of her and got herself out of the procedure chair and grabbed pepper spray that she had in her purse. But while she was trying to get to the pepper spray in her purse, which was on the counter, she noticed that also on the counter were several explicit Polaroids of her on the counter. What? Yes. What the hell is happening here? This is all taking place in 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 a dentist's office. In a dentist's office. I'm never going to the dentist again. Well, John, I think you're safe. I don't think they're going to put thigh highs on you. No, that would not be a good scene. But no, not to make fun, not to make fun of this. But seriously, that that is terrifying. Yes. Wow. And, and you do hear about this happening when patients yeah. are under anesthesia that you know doctors are in, have been inappropriate with well, them. Yeah. And this did happen because this is the doctor flipped out. When she wakes up. So now she's beginning to cry. She's putting on her clothes, sobbing as the doctor is pleading with her not to tell anyone. And she tr- she was taking the Polaroids. And he said, no, leave them, leave them. Spare us the embarrassment. Like, just wait till tomorrow when we're both more calm and we can reach an agreement. And that was basically what the paper was that Tracy had sent Michael. That she would get the money, two tickets to Australia... And there was a promise that the doctor would seek help for his quote-unquote sexual obsession. He's a predator. And he would, for the rest of his career, give up the practice of sedating his patients. If Tracy promised to never seek legal action against him or his firm or 
and never tell anybody, including her husband. So he's basically saying, if I pay you off, will you keep your mouth shut? This is insane. Yeah. Is is this why maybe did they, did they move to this town because of that? Um, It was one of the reasons why. Because, I mean, I think you would want to escape, um, you know, be, even being near this person. You would want to get away from this situation yeah. completely. Yeah. And Michael told his wife first that he, of course, still loved her. That wasn't even like a thought in his mind. But that they needed to go to the police. That this man is a predator. He's He did this, something horrific to you. He wanted to kill him. And he's done it to people before you. And he will most likely do it to people after you. So so you, we need to go to the police. That's true, yeah. Um, she didn't want to because she was obviously mortified. And that's really some of the reasons why women don't come forward in cases like this. Because... A, they're not believed and B, they're embarrassed because there is a small part of you that feels like you're at fault for this, which you're ne- you never are, but you just feel like it. Right. It's a, it's a shame that you, f- you feel. And what happened was they, the way it was explained is that they didn't go to the police necessarily, but they sued the doctor for medical malpractice is how it happened. And the court hearing for the attack was to be two days later on December 15th. So she was attacked in her home two days before the court hearing with this doctor for this malpractice suit. So, Oh, wow. Okay. So could he have retaliated? But then why was Dustin in? How does Dustin get involved in this? So Michael said, because obviously when Michael heard about the attack, he hadn't known that Dustin was involved. And he said, when I heard my wife was attacked, the first thing I thought of was this malpractice suit, which makes sense. Yeah, like I'm a little thrown off by it because I don't I don't think that so far there's any kind of connection between the guy, John, the ex, Dustin, and now this guy in Chicago, the... the and Dustin. Right. Like, how are they connected? Like, what one thing is shared among the three? Like, listen, I think that, and we'll get into John Pittman in a little bit. I think John Pittman had a reason to murder Tracy Roberts. And I think this doctor in Chicago did as well. Like, they, they both had motive. But the fact that Dustin's involved throws everything off. The sad part is I'm getting the feeling that however this is going to play out, this kid Dustin was used. Yeah. So that way it wouldn't fall back on whoever else this really is, you know, about. Is that fault? Yeah. Yeah. So let's go back to Virginia where Dr. John Pittman has been questioned by the local authorities there. Pittman appeared to be genuinely shocked when he heard that Dustin Weedy had been involved in the attack on his ex-wife. He had already been informed about what had happened because his son was involved. He said he couldn't believe that Dustin was involved. And they asked if he knew who Dustin Weedy was even. And he said, like, I don't know the boy specifically, but I'm aware of him because his he said, I met his younger sister, Ashley, who's the middle daughter of the Weedy family, because Ashley would sometimes babysit Bert. So, like, he had talked to Ashley on the phone before and things like that. Okay. So, he's like, I I know of the family. I know that the family was close to my ex-wife and her new husband. So, I think it's crazy that he was involved in this. 
and they kind of make him aware that there's some there's been some implications of him having hired Dustin. They do not let him know about the notebook. And he was like, that's ridiculous. They ask for an alibi. He gives them an alibi. And just to kind of like move the case a little further along for us, um, his alibi would later be checked out airtight. It's true. They go on to subpoena his phone and computer records to see if there has been any communication between him and Dustin, and they can find zero communication. Okay, so then there has to be some kind of... Someone's trying to mislead police here. Right. Maybe with this journal. Maybe the journal is not correct. Like maybe they're trying to frame John. Frame John, yeah. So that way it doesn't fall on them. Right. Maybe Maybe Michael is involved with, you know, and using Dustin... To frame. Yes, to frame John. John Pittman. Yes. But detectives still wanted to consider, you know, John Pittman as being involved because there was motive there. As they learned from Tracy and Michael, Tracy had divorced John Pittman for many reasons. Like I said before, you know, when she kind of was expressing this to Mona, she believed that John Pittman had cheated on her and she had not liked the aggressive tendencies that he had in the bedroom. Like, like she said that he liked tying her up, which was a little interesting because she did claim that she had been tied up by like these stockings. Um, She said there was one incident in particular where he had tied her up on a bed naked, left the windows open, and she was like freezing all night. So she said that was something that John Pittman had done to her, allegedly. And she said that it wasn't necessarily those Um, sexual proclivities that he had that made her want to leave the relationship. The ultimate deciding factor was when Bert had come to her and said that his father had touched him inappropriately. Allegedly. Allegedly. So Tracy and her mother brought Bert to a doctor who said the boy could have been sexually abused, but did not confirm it as it couldn't be confirmed. Because of this, Tracy sought full custody of her son. As this court battle was going on, she won temporary full custody and eventually would win full custody over Bert. She also won the case where um, she was requesting to move out of state with Bert, citing that one of the reasons was the medical malpractice case that she wanted to leave the state for. In the months before the attack, the incident, um, John Pittman revealed to the couple that he was going to be seeking full custody of Bert. Okay, so there's his possible motive right there. Yeah, there's a and and this could be bad um because it was just it was a dirty custody battle. She was accusing him of being sexually inappropriate with their child. He was saying that they were trying to pit the child against him. Um Bert is very distanced from his father. When he's interviewed by police about the incident that occurred, he is, he's saying what happened. It's very odd. He's um, laughing in the interview. Very similar to like what we saw with um, Burke Ramsey. Okay. Just uh, a bizarre interview. Bizarre interview. And he keeps saying John Pittman did it. 
John Pittman did it. Not your dad? He doesn't call him dad. So it is very obvious um, where Bert lies or what he has been told. And what would also happen if Tracy lost full custody of Bert is that she would lose the $1,000 in child support she was getting a month from John. Okay. It was just a very messy custody battle. We don't know what's true on one side or the other. That's fair. So another suspect in the investigation was Michael Roberts himself. Okay, let's find out what's going on here. Remember that incident where Tracy came running into the office and Michael kind of excused Mona and then she heard fighting? Yeah. Well, that night, things had turned physical. Tracy eventually called the police and she claimed that Michael had attacked her, that he pulled her hair and put her head through the drywall. Michael claimed that he didn't hurt Tracy, but he was trying to restrain her because she was going crazy. So based on this past incident, they they kept him in jail overnight for domestic violence charges. But in the end, he was uh, charged with disturbing the peace and not necessarily a domestic violence charge. But they did think, okay, since we have this incident on record, could he potentially be capable of violence? There were also the strict stories of his parenting of Bert. So people in the community said that, like, you know, he had punishments. He had certain expectations for the kids, especially Bert, which you could kind of see as being inappropriate because that's his stepson, not his son. And you have a father that's fighting for custody. So are the arguments of John Pittman valid that his son might not be treated 100 percent? And later on. At the age of 21, Bert does come out and say that Michael was um, did beat him. And hit him and have really violent punishments for what he considered misbehaviors. I mean, it's really sad. I mean, you have his fa- actual father being accused of, of inappropriately, you know, inappropriately touching him. touching him. Yeah. And then a stepfather. And just, just beats him. I mean, this poor kid. I mean, honestly. Right. So had Michael, who took Dustin under his wing and mentored him, kind of molded his mind into thinking that he should kind of do this attack in order to help them get John Pittman out of their hair? Or was Michael trying to get rid of Tracy because they were, their relationship was headed downhill? I mean, these are all really good, like, possibilities. Especially because Michael sees how dirty she's playing in these custody battles with Bert. Yeah. Very, I mean, it's very possible. Right. I mean, this whole family seems to have motive. had a lot of tr- motive, but also a lot of trauma. Yes. What's happened to the mother here? What happened? What's happened to Bert? It's right. a lot. And what's happening to Dustin? Dustin, and the, yeah, there's a lot going it's on It's a here. convergence of tragedies. Yeah. So detectives are able to confirm Michael's alibi, that he was out of state while the this attack took place. And they just felt like... Michael's reactions were genuine. They felt like he was very confused, hurt, and saddened by the involvement of Dustin. When asked, like when the Wheaties were asked or people in the community were asked, it all seemed like his interactions with Dustin were truly genuine. 
that he saw this kid kind of like as a mirror of himself in a different way. And he was trying to help him. Um, so they really just felt like Michael was being so genuine in his reactions that he was not involved in what was taking place. I don't know. I don't trust him. Well, there's there's things that the detectives feel. Yeah. So I just don't trust him. Okay. You're still red flagging. I'm still red flagging him because I think that someone as vulnerable and as impressionable as Dustin, who was going through his own issues, I think he was taken advantage of. And I always find that in this life that we live here, people just don't do not always people don't do things at the kindness of their heart all the time. And there might be some strings that are 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 here, you know, between the two. No, I agree with you. It's sad. It's it all around. It's very sad. Yeah. And a lot of questions and a red flag still on Michael. 100%. In all of this, the Wheaties were questioned too. Had Dustin's behavior changed? Was he violent? Had there been any indication that something like this was going to happen? Because sometimes there are warning signs. Mona and Brett were very honest with the police. They said that Dustin had a significant history with his behavioral health and his mental health, but that he was more withdrawn than he was violent. They said they never had a problem with him being violent. In the months that followed the incident, the detectives continued to try and make connections between Dustin and John Pittman, or they tried to determine if the murder-for-hire plot had been a figment of Dustin's imagination, maybe. Like, maybe Dustin was thinking, here's this family that helped me. I'm going to come in and be the savior and get rid of this problem that this family has. Maybe. I mean, it's it's actually really hard to, like, even try to figure out why he would do this and why he wrote what he wrote in this journal. Correct. Because the journal doesn't even seem to be genuine. I agree. I think it's too convenient. Way too convenient. And conveniently on his front seat. And I and I think that him being in front of the house after saying, is Michael home? And he's not. So, you know, she tells him, you know, come back later. And he's just sitting around there means that he's trying. He's contemplating what to do next because the plan that he was told is now not working. Or. Oh, okay. That that is the plan, but he's having second thoughts about actually doing it. Okay. So, the I don't think the journal is completely bogus. Okay, I think that that's valid because I think that, like I, like I said, I think that it's so convenient. The yeah, journal. The journal's way too convenient, and it's an odd placement. If you are a hired hitman and you're chronicling your hitman status you're just going to leave that journal in the front seat of your car and it's going to say oh by the way I, this is the guy this by the way i'm here now trying to kill people and by the way this is who told me to come here and do it right it's, <laughs> you can find odd. this conveniently on my front seat after i've been killed like it's it's just not it's normal. bizarre yeah another thing the detectives were trying to do and really what they felt like was the most important was trying to search for the mysterious second older man that had been with Dustin that night. They questioned and canvassed the area, but no one had seen anything suspicious. The media went crazy with this story. Both local and national news companies picked up the story and had Tracy come on and do interviews. She was even a guest on the Montel Williams show. It was a story of a mother doing everything she could to protect her children. 
But it was hard for the Weedy family to hear because that had been their child that was killed. So, you know, like it's like this story of like a mother saving her children and they're like, but you killed ours. That is a very slippery slope yes. to even approach. I know. Both both families so far, I mean, are dealing with things. You can't take you can't take either thing away from each side of the family. Exactly. One, it could have went worse. You know, she might not have been able to reach for the gun and other people could have been killed in the house. You know, but then you have the other family that lost somebody. So it's very, very difficult. Under confusing circumstances. And I think that's really what it is. I think if someone were a clear aggressor, but there's just so many unanswered questions about this attack and this incident. And the pressure had become too much. And Mona and Brett split from each other. That's really sad. Both of them had become too consumed by what had happened, and they couldn't go on together. On Thanksgiving of 2002, a few weeks short of it being a year after the incident took place, Mona got a call from the funeral director in town. He had devastating news for her. He told her, I just want you to know that I have Brett. And she didn't understand what he meant. She thought that he had just gone down there, but he meant his body. His body had been sent to him. On the morning of Thursday, November 28th, he had gone to his son's grave and died by suicide. He shot himself in the heart and left a note saying that he had cried every day since December 13th. And you could say that it was his way his last ditch effort to try and connect with a son he could never reach. Very sad. It's a very hard thing to hear, right? Yeah. And as you're telling it, I see how hard it is. <laughs> um, but it is sad. Like that's incredibly difficult. I mean, you, I don't think anyone can deal with losing their kid and, and be normal after that. No. You know, and then it it really... Especially when you felt like your son was struggling and you could never quite get there. Yeah. So you're always going to feel a certain level of responsibility in it, even though you did everything you possibly could. That's a good point. That's really, really sad. Yeah. Okay. You always always pull at my heartstrings. (laughs) I know. In the years that followed the incident, there was a stalemate. If they were being completely honest, the reason why the detectives didn't necessarily aggressively pursue John Pittman or Michael Roberts was because they felt like there was something wrong with the entire incident. The whole thing just seemed wrong. Nothing made sense. They felt Like when Tracy would tell the story for the news, she would slightly change her story with every retelling by filling in gaps that like people would have questions to. So if she gave one interview with one news broadcast, she would say something which would make people have questions. And then the next interview, she would retell the story answering the questions that the people had. And they thought that that was really odd. And another thing was that they just could not find this second person. 
There was nothing, no clues. Not, and usually there's some type of leads. You know, it's kind of dawning on me right now. Like, what if there wasn't a second person? What if she's lying? I, you know, something that I was thinking about, too, way earlier on, the moment you were telling me that when she was reaching for the gun and all that other stuff, uh-huh. around that time I'm thinking to myself, maybe in some crazy turn of events, both husband and wife here are are responsible for his death. Like, did they set this up? Did something, did he, did Dustin overhear something maybe at Michael's house or, or at, at work when he was working for Michael? Um, was he involved somehow with the wife of Michael? I Like, is there some kind of outlier yeah. that... Is there another thing we're missing? Yes, and then that was why they, they created this elaborate plan well, to have be... them in him, you know, have go into a home invasion and then the wife taking him out. But the problem with that theory is just the notebook. Well, you know what? To be honest with you, we don't know if he even wrote it. What if he didn't it write it? It was his handwriting. <sighs> this is complicated. But but it is weird, though. And the, and the detectives are right here. Mm-hmm. I, um She's being a little odd in her interviews. Correct. Which is making me feel like, are they both responsible somehow? And maybe she's lying and there isn't another person. Maybe she's the other person. Who knows? I don't know. I mean, it, anything could be possible here. I don't know. I don't know either. Well, I do know. I know you know. Yeah. And I don't. And it's <laughs> this is <laughs> aggravating. Okay, I'm going to let you keep going. Okay. While 20-year-old Dustin Weedy continued to shoulder the blame for the attack, and Mona no longer had the energy to carry on the fight, not after losing Dustin and then Brett. And the Roberts family was not left untouched either by this incident. A few years later, in April of 2004, Michael filed for divorce from Tracy. Oh, he did? Yes. And the detectives were a little excited about this because they were like, ooh, maybe Michael will reveal something to us. And he said, no, I'm just as puzzled as you are with this. Do I Did I have questions about the incident? In retrospect, yeah, I did. But, you know, to Michael, even though Michael was maybe a strict disciplinarian, maybe whatever, but he he said, I loved Tracy and I found her to be honest and a complete victim when it came to the situation with the dentist. And I felt like here was this poor woman having something else happen to her and I wanted to come to her rescue almost. And he said, but I was very torn because I loved Dustin And I felt like finding this second person was going to give us the answers, which was why he was the one who suggested actually that they go on the Montel Williams show. And when you listen to like the footage of it, he's there holding her hand as she's retelling the story. And then at the end, he says, you know, it's this kind of like we wanted to take this case nationally because we want to know who this second person is so we can have answers. So they still found that, like, they felt like Michael was not involved. Okay, so then it has to be somebody that knows Tracy. 
Don't tell me it's the dentist. It's not the dentist. Okay, I was going to say, like, maybe he, she's extorting him the now to go do it. The dentist is just a really bizarre piece of this puzzle, which makes things even more complicated. But it is not the dentist. Okay. Does that make you feel better? Yeah. Okay. I mean, it would be wild. Imagine it that. It would be wild. It's like a wild She's extorting part of him it. now for murder. I mean, well, here here is a very complicated thing, right? Because we're, we're toying with the fact that maybe Tracy is lying about this attack. But in one situation, she's truly a victim. So it's hard. It's hard to say you're lying. It is. It's hard to question a victim, you know? And that's the last thing you want to do. Exactly. Is, is to question their... Because it perpetuates problems and people coming forward with right. certain things. But this incident is very different than the scenario that happened in the dentist's office. Okay. So nine years after the attack, a new district attorney took a look at the case that had plagued the county for almost a decade. He felt that the lack of information was truly odd and that the details of the case were strange. And he wondered why no one had asked questions. These simple questions that he had. For instance, why had Tracy shot Dustin nine times? And why were three of those shots to the back of his head if it was self-defense? Well, you would only have wounds in the back of your head. Is it either, either he was ambushed himself, or she, he was running away and she was shooting him, or he was laying down on the ground and she, yeah, like, like what they think it implied is when she grabbed that second gun, and he was getting up, that her kids were not in the room. They didn't see what happened. So when she shot that warning shot, it wasn't a warning shot. It was about a bullet to the back of his head. And she said, don't get up, don't get up. And then she claimed he did get up. So she shot him two more times. But then the trajectory wouldn't have been the way it was at his head. Right. She shot straight down at his head. Like he was on the ground. It was an execution shot. Yeah. Also, why were there shots all around the room as if, yes, she was firing wildly, but the shots that hit Dustin were fired with surprising accuracy so you're wildly firing five shots and then you get a solid six good shots in in like kill zone areas and then three to the back of the head perfectly that is a little weird i don't know how much of an avid shooter she was i don't know if she that i don't know yeah i mean she could have gone to ranges and practiced i mean i don't know Mm mm-hmm Other questions included, why did the two attackers arrive in different cars? Now, if this notebook was found on the passenger seat, the second person wasn't sitting on it when they arrived there. So it's like that means the two people must have arrived in separate cars. And there weren't any tire prints to indicate that like tire impressions to indicate another car was there. Also, if Dustin was this hitman that was coming to kill Tracy, why would he park just in our driveway? When he could have walked to her home. Also, if you're going to someone's house to kill them, wouldn't you bring a weapon? Or dress like you were trying to conceal yourself in some way? Yes. So he felt that in Tracy's version of events, Dustin was a real threat to the family. But the three bullets in the back of the head showed that he wasn't trying to get up off the floor. And that is like an indication of overkill. Like if he was shot six times, he 
was he really getting up as a threat to your family? Well, I think the biggest thing here is what are the laws like where they live? I don't know. Like I, it, if, I would say shooting someone six times so they're laying in a pool of their own blood, even if they're stirring, you could have gotten yourself out of the house into a neighbor's house. Yeah, listen, I, I'm, I don't know. I, yes, I agree with you there. I'm saying, like, the amount of shots fired, I, I get. With two separate guns. I, I get that, you know, but, like, if he was, if someone was continue like to continue to move towards you and you retreat to like let's say the the furthest part of the house and you have nowhere to go and you continue to fire the gun i mean i guess it's kind of okay (laughs) they just thought it was a weird they figured we've seen self-defense cases before this doesn't look like this doesn't look right and and, and listen the back of the head shots that makes no sense right so it is overkill just based on that alone, I think. Right. Because that shows me that he was still alive and she executed him on the floor. Correct. So the first thing that they wanted to do in reinvestigating this crime was to talk to witnesses again. One woman that they wanted to speak to was another mother from town. Her husband was a local farmer. Her name was Mary Higgins. She had been, it's very Mary Higgins Clark, I keep thinking Mary Higgins Clark every time I hear her name. (laughs) She had been close with Tracy since she moved to town. Their children were in the same classes and the women became really close. They, They hung out together. They attended workout classes together. And the detectives told Mary that they had some more evidence against Tracy. And immediately the woman became defensive and guarded. She said to them, what do you mean? That stupid notebook? And the DA was shocked to hear that from Mary Higgins, a friend of the victim, because guess what? The police in Iowa can keep a secret. No one knew about the notebook. Not John Pittman, not the Weedy family, and not the Roberts. So how did Mary Higgins know about it? So they say, well, what do you mean? How do you know about the notebook? And she said, oh, well, Tracy told me about it. Oh, okay. Please tell me more. What do you know about this? Tell us more, Mary. (laughs) Mary went on to say that Tracy had told her that Dr. Pittman was going to be arrested and in a lot of trouble because the investigators found a pink notebook that would connect him to the shooting. And then later on, Tracy told Mary to forget about the notebook. Once the police didn't mention the pink notebook to Tracy, she realized, okay, the police are trying to keep this a secret, so let me tell Mary not to say anything about it. Okay. So this brought the investigation into a whole new direction. If Tracy was truly just a victim, she would have no knowledge of her killer's notebook. It led them down a very interesting line of thinking. Are you ready for this? I'm ready. That Tracy embroiled in a new and bitter custody battle with her ex-husband, had concocted a plot to try and get him in jail. Because if she lost custody battle, not only would she be losing Bert, but she would no longer receive the $1,000 a month child support check from him. So that meant that the 20-year-old that had taken the fall for everything had just been a pawn in the whole plan. Had Tracy asked him to come over the house and being friends with the family, he went. And there she told him about the bitter custody dispute, which he knew 
about because Michael had told Dustin about how he hated John Pittman, about how he was a monster, about how he did horrible things to Tracy and how he had sexually abused Bert. Like all of those things were told to Dustin, but not in a way that Michael was trying to convince Dustin to do something, but in a way that he was just confiding in the boy. Right. So then while Michael's gone on a business trip, Tracy asks him to come over. And what she does is she kind of clears the tracks because if any neighbor saw that Dustin had come over in the morning, she could say, oh, he came over to ask about if Michael was coming, if Michael could come hang out. Okay. But that wasn't true. She asked Dustin to come over, told him about everything that was happening, had him write these things in a notebook because she was telling him this would solve the problem. That he wasn't writing the notebook as Dustin, just as somebody. Like, I'm going to say this notebook was left in the house. I see. So he was just used by Tracy. Yes. And then she somehow got him. She, he was in the bedroom and she shot him. And then she put the notebook in his car. That's really sad. And so messed up. Yeah. And this whole time I'm thinking it's Michael. Yeah. But wait, it's not over. Okay. Then she went on to fake her own strangulation because she did have a very dark red rash around her neck. So to try and corroborate this new theory that investigators had, they met with the medical examiner who did confirm that Tracy cannot be telling the truth. Now, she claimed that during the strangulation that she passed out. That wasn't true. Because where the red mark was located on her neck, it would have been impossible to cause her to pass out due to restricted airways because it was too, it was too, it was right in the middle of the neck. And that wouldn't have blocked her airways. So she, I mean, hurt herself enough to show there being bruising, but not enough to actually pass out from no. restricted airway. The location in where the mark was yeah. would not have caused her to pass out. Right, but enough to leave a mark. Enough to leave a mark, but what what the medical I think you're confused okay, about sorry. the medical examiner the strength in which it was done was a really hard mark, but it would have had to have been higher up or lower to have stopped the airways. Got it. Okay. It was in the wrong location. And they said that it looked more like a rash. Then it did a pulling okay. bruise. So it looked like she put the pantyhose around her neck and kind of just twisted them until it caused a rash. Okay. On July 27th, 2011, Tracy Richter, because she changed her name because she got divorced from Michael and she'd moved to Omaha, Nebraska, um, was charged with the first degree murder of Dustin Weedy. Good. At the trial, Mary Higgins took the stand and said that Tracy had told her about the pink spiral notebook. I mean, the fact that she knows about the notebook is really all the prosecutors needed. I mean, it's it's a big eyewitness. I mean, it, not, well, a big witness in the case. And no, but it's it's the smoking gun. Yeah. Because how did she know about this notebook? Well, she had to be told <laughs> by Tracy. Right. So that means that Tracy could only know about the notebook if she had Dustin write it. Right. And and was involved in this. Correct. (laughs) So at the trial, Mary Higgins took the stand 
to say that Tracy told her about the notebook and the fact that John Pittman had done it. So that meant that she was trying to like set her ex-husband up. And the medical examiner testified about the strangulation mark on her neck not being in the right location. And it was also revealed that there were no additional fingerprints found at the house, so there was no second man. Another source of information was John Pittman himself, who told a very different story of his relationship with Tracy. That, in fact, they'd gotten divorced because she had been the philanderer, the person who was cheating. And that one time when they fought, she actually pulled a gun on him. Oh, so she, maybe she has uh, she had some violent tendencies yes. herself. And for the defense, Tracy did not testify, but her son, Bert, who was now 21 years old, did. He told the story of the night, and it was the exact story that he had told police when he was 11. But there was one difference. Whereas in the police interview when he was 11, he, he blamed John Pittman. He didn't call him dad. He was now blaming Michael Roberts because he was an abusive stepfather. So he was trying to say, like, Michael Roberts had his mom killed. Because after the 2004 divorce, all of a sudden, both Tracy and her son Bert turned on Michael. Then he was the one who did it. I see. And the testimony was so hard-pressed against Michael that it didn't hold water with the jury because two reasons. When they were shown the interview that Bert gave when he was 11, he was like, it was his retelling of the story was very bizarre. He was laughing about it, kind of painting his mom and him as like these characters, like taking down the bad guys. And he was laughing about certain things. And it, it was just, it was very strange and at the end of the day, the kids didn't see anything because the door was shut. Right. I mean, it's an incomplete, like, eyewitness. Yeah. And he was 11. Yes. And it was strange. And it you could tell that he had a narrative and a story to tell because he kept saying, John Pittman did it. John Pittman did it. And he can't really care about me because he didn't call me in the hospital. It, you know, like he kept saying it was his father. And now on the stand, he's retelling this story about Michael. It's it's very confusing. It's very sad because I feel like this kid has been directed to say and think so many things for his whole life. Because um, at the end of the day, that is his mom. You know? Right. So and another thing that the jury was confused about was now here Bert was on the stand saying that Michael had planned this. But that went against what the defense team was saying. So at the time in 2001, around December of 2001, Tracy had been having an affair on Michael. And the defense team was trying to claim that the second mystery man that had been with Dustin that day had been the man she was having an affair with. Which also didn't even seem plausible because if Dustin liked Michael so much, why would he be in partnership with the man that she was cheating on Michael with? Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. No. <laughs> So it seems like the only plausible thing was that Dustin, at this crossroads in his life, was used as a pawn in Tracy's scheme. Yeah, he was manipulated. And the jury inevitably found her guilty of first-degree murder of Dustin Weedy 
And she, having masterminded it all, was sentenced to life in prison. I mean, I think justice was served. Yeah. And I'm I'm shocked, but I'm not 100% shocked. Because, I mean, listen, I knew one of one of them had to have been manipulating this kid into doing what needed to be done for their plan. Right. Whether it was Michael or Tracy, I mean, it, it was it had to be somebody taking advantage of this this child of uh, this guy. You know, and it's it's sad. It's really you know? sad. And with with it's not just Dustin. You know, being killed either. It sends ripple effects, and it always does. All every single family that has something tragic happen to them. It, it it just it affects everyone. the 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 father took his own life, you know, mm-hmm. because of the loss of his son. That's so sad, you know. Feeling responsible for that, you know the you know the mother and you know the father getting separated over it, and all, all the other things yep. that everybody went through is so sad. Just to pursue this sick and twisted plan to get back at your ex husband because you want a thousand dollars a month, you know, it's just like. You're insane, and you are exactly where you're supposed yeah. to be in jail for the rest of your life. You destroyed an entire family. Yeah, and I think it was also a ploy, too, because now Michael had actually discussed about them getting a divorce before this incident happened. And then now after that took place, she became the victim again. Right. And then he stayed for years. So I think it was more than just wanting to get back. at. I think she saw this as everything. I think she didn't like that Michael was mentoring Dustin. I think she didn't like that Michael was leaving her. I think she didn't like the fact that her ex-husband was going to try and get custody of her first son. So she said, how can I do this all at once? Prove to Michael he was wrong for mentoring Dustin. Make Michael want to stay with me because I become the victim again. Because what did he do when that happened with the dentist? He protected her and stayed with her and reinforced this love that he had for her. So she wanted that to all stay that way. And on top of it, she was going to be putting her ex-husband in jail. Yeah. This is crazy. Wild. Very wild. Uh, and I just feel yeah. so bad. It's so it's so heartbreaking for the Weedy family. But at least Dustin is no longer bearing the burden of that that kind of label that he got as being the person who did this. I think what's sad and to piggyback off of that, I think what's the worst part is that this kid was bullied and, and had a, had a rough go of things and to have his name dragged through the mud um, for a very long time. Made it only worse. Just made it worse. Yeah. But it's good that his name is cleared. Yes. Yes. Okay. So, Before we go, we want to say thank you to the new members on Patreon. So we just want to say a big thank you to Kristen, Megan Johnson, Carrie Chapman upped her pledge, Amanda Gennetti, Hannah Ashblund, Kayla Callahan, Maggie, Cecile Anderson, Emily Diaz upped her pledge, Michelle Van Nez, Melissa Flores, Joshua McClure, Jamie Perceville, Cash, Zachariah Kellicooli, Liani Kavenner, T. Farrell, Jennifer Brown, Faith Dunn, Katie Natasha, Linda Karilowitz, and Molly G. 
Thank you guys so much for joining Patreon. We hope you're enjoying those extra bonus episodes. And until next time, guys, don't park next to vans. Bye, guys. Bye.